0: Agriculture and food is very much an an enabler of the diversity of the economy. Providing food through agriculture or hunting and gathering is the default activity of any society. As we focus in and specialize, that we can get a division of labor in the economy.
1: Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. It's Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by the one and only Professor Chris Sands of Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, how you doing?
2: Scotty, great to see you, and you—you you are fabulous as always.
1: Well, you too, my friend. We're—we're we're each other's best fan club. Uh, it's a party of one each side, but that's okay. And I'm feeling hungry today, and I wanted to, i think it's—we have a perfect uh opportunity to take today to talk about canada and the u.s and how we collaborate on agriculture and food and also you know we've been talking a lot um but haven't dedicated an episode to food security so feeding the world is also important so it's not just um it's not just us here at home but it's also how our countries uh feed the world so i'm excited about our guest and uh alan whistle and i'd love for you to introduce him chris
2: I'm happy to do so. Al Mussel is the research lead founder Uh, of Agri-Food Economic Systems, Inc. He's also the research director for the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute, which is where I encountered him. His areas of research expertise are farm management, agricultural marketing, and agricultural policy. And for 15 years, Al served as a senior research associate at the George Morris Center, which some of our listeners will know, was at the University of Guelph in beautiful Guelph, Ontario. Uh, Prior to that, Al worked as an economist with the Milk Procurement Division of Land O'Lakes in Minnesota. Now, you might ask how did he get to minnesota well al holds a bachelor's and a master of science degree in agricultural economics from the university of guelph but a doctorate in agricultural economics from the university of minnesota where he was a fulbright scholar so another canusa connection between canadians and americans he's a past president of the canadian agricultural economics society the Scholarly Society for Agricultural Economics in Canada, a past directory of progressive dairy operators, a dairy industry educational organization, and an alumnus of the US State Department's International Visitor Leadership Program, one that has, we both know, Scotty, friends uh, who've come across the border as part of the IVLP. And we just had a, a an introduction to one of Al's employees in the dairy, uh, Dairy farm that he has. We got to see one of his uh, cows. Uh, Al, what what was that particular cow's name? I know they they always have to have names. Uh, that cow's name is eighty seven.
1: Uh, Chris. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I was um, just going to say that, Chris. I could have. You know, had, I don't I, know how you have time to do all your work and also uh, have an active farm. And what we're referring to, just for our listeners, is you know we're on Zoom as we record these podcasts, and uh, Chris was trying to. Figure out Al's backdrop, and it turns out Al's office is a window overlooking his farm. So we got to peek through the window at this gorgeous cow. So Al, how do you have time to actually farm? You must have a lot of help out there. If you're doing all your policy work, yeah, I
0: I, I think I actually am some of the help. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, You know, during the pandemic, people were, were, um, you know, there's hybrid um, uh, office and working conditions and. and I kind of sorted myself to to being—I'll uh, call it the daytime supervisor of a dairy farm. So, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm the I'm the assistant, the assistant manager, and you know, maybe a decent substitute for an eighteen-year-old. But but anyway, I, I try to do that as as well as uh,
2: my other work. And you can tell I'm not a farmer because I thought your cows all had names when I should have known better. But Well, they they, they do have names that have to pull out a pedigree, but uh, we call her
0: 87.
1: Anyway. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and just, and this is probably impolite. It's probably like asking a banker how much money they have or how many acres you have. But how many cows do you have, Al, just while um, we're talking about this? this just, just say,
0: uh, yeah, just. Behind me here we've got about, say, about be about 47 milking and uh this herd would be uh low 60, 62, 63
1: cows, something like that. Amazing. Yeah. So so just getting right into it, you know, why is it important do you think for people to understand agri food policy? Like, you know, I feel like I feel like you've made a life at at helping people get smarter on something that um that they take for granted people, you know, milk doesn't come from the grocery store. <laughs> it comes from number 87, right, right behind you. So why is it important though, do you think, for people to understand that particular supply chain?
0: Yeah, and maybe I'll, I'll uh, respond in in this way. Um, agriculture and food is very much an, an enabler of um, the diversity of the economy. Um, another way to think of it is, um, you know, in a uh, providing food through agriculture or hunting and gathering is the default activity of any society. And kind of what what differentiates, you know, your more primitive societies, you know very primitive societies, really couldn't do anything else. That's all they did. Um, but it's it's as we um, focus in and specialize. That we can get a division of labor in the economy, essentially. So it's, you know, if you if you go and read uh, you know some of the anthropology work or sociology work, they will they will describe how you know particularly European societies kind of rose as people found ways to specialize farming and allow other people to have other kinds of jobs. So so I think that's I think that's really it. I mean, there's the other the other aspects which are um you know, the public health component of food we all have to we all have to eat we have requirements in our diets it's uh critical in children's growth all those sorts of things
1: well interesting and just when you think about you've lived in Canada and the United States both um I have. and yeah and when it comes to dairy in particular, uh, we have vast differences in the way we manage that particular part of the economy. How do you, so Canada being supply managed, if you will, uh, the U.S. being a little more free market, how do you assess the similarities and differences um, between our two countries?
0: Yeah, I I guess first, uh, you know, in in my experience with it, um, I don't think it's as different as it's often given credit for. So, and you know, what we're referring to here is um, kind of milk marketing systems. Uh, at the farm, which in which there are differences, but there's actually more similarities than there are differences. You know, both the United States and Canada employ a, um, a regulated structure in which you've got uh, classified milk end uses. You've got uh, pooling, you've got multiple component pricing. Uh, Both, uh, both the U S and Canada employ, you know, pretty sturdy trade barriers to, uh, to imports. The, the difference in the Canadian system, is that um, the the price mechanism is somewhat different, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll spare your, your listeners of all the arcane detail of, of milk pricing, but but um, you know, basically in the United States you've got uh, you've got a sufficient size economy that you can have uh, a wholesale market for butter and cheese and so on. The Canadian market is really too thin for that, so instead we have an administered pricing model. And in order to provide the discipline for that, we have to have production quotas. Now there aren't production quotas of the same type in the United States as there is in Canada. Although marketing through cooperatives, uh, there are there are quota-like effects uh, using mark uh, in, in in cooperatives. So yeah, I'm I'm not sure it's quite as different as uh, some people give it credit for.
2: Um, uh, Al, one of the things that's always fascinated me is the degree to which we integrate, um, d- despite the occasional trade barrier, we integrate food production, including food processing, taking the raw materials and moving them and making them into you know packaged goods and other things that we have. And in, in a world in which food insecurity often drives countries, you think of Japan, to be kind of obsessed with rice production, just making sure they can take care of themselves how is it that the United States and Canada have come to rely on each other? And what are the elements of that trust of being able to work together? Is it that we have high regulatory standards, even if slightly different? Is it that we have free trade and so we're used to moving things back and forth? What, what makes it possible for us to have uh, such a cooperative pair of agricultural sectors or agricultural economies?
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's, it's a great question, uh, Chris, and I don't know if there's a real simple answer to that you know maybe the starting point for this is the you know kind of larger integration of um of economies in which you know if if you're gonna um you know when you're working together internationally you know one country working with another and and having that that uh trust and dependency that that's a pretty mature relationship and I don't think that that occurs on kind of an ad hoc basis you know like we now, let's say we don't agree on many things, but shucks, we can work together on wheat. Yeah, maybe sometimes, but more commonly, I think it's it's a more intimate relationship in which we can, you know, for example, in the U.S.-Canada uh, situation, you know, you, you look at uh, the breakfast cereal manufacturing industry, which is, which is heavily oriented in the U.S., and the Canadian market is largely served out of U.S. manufacturing. But the oats, which is one of the predominant ingredients that goes into that, you know, almost uniquely grown in Western Canada. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you don't, I, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's so much an oat relationship as it is an intimacy of the relationship between the economies that, you know, it's investment, it's technology, it's, it's, uh, it was, it's what builds major food companies.
2: It's interesting because I, I think about this sometimes in the context of, of Mexico, and, and Mexico is having a debate about GMO corn and other things that they get from the rest of North America, and Canada and the U.S. both export uh, to Mexico, but you just don't see the relationship. It's almost... Uh, the the U.S. Mexico even Canada Mexico agricultural relationship doesn't have that same familiarity. And you could say, well, it's common language, common culture, maybe. But but I think you may be getting closer to the reality of it that it is something that builds um, kind of organically uh, in in the private sector, but also among farmers uh, in terms of supply relationships.
0: Yeah, and and I, and I think maybe what's important, and um, you know, I. I I don't feel like I'm real knowledgeable about the about the um uh, you I know a little bit about the US Mexico and US Canadian or or Mexican Canadian relationship rather, but um it's a little more transactional. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, and, and I and I don't think that you get the you know, you don't get the investment, you know, whether you're talking about plants, equipment, uh, you know, marketing, brands, those kinds of things out of transactional relationship the same way that you do with more fulsome. Um, uh, you know, trust based relationship where you, where you really integrated things at a higher
2: level. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to ask if I could um, something that has been I've been thinking about a lot, believe it or not, uh, and it dates back to my work. Um, I worked with the Prince Edward Island Potato Board um, when the U.S. border was closed for a period to PEI potatoes because of a. Um, because of a phytosanitary issue, and what I real and that that issue was resolved. The governments, uh, the federal government of Canada and the provincial government and the potato growers all uh, came up with a solution. But what I learned in that Al, and I want to ask you about, is there is a fundamental difference um, in the United States and in Canada with our regulators, and uh, see, see see what your thoughts are in the U.S. Um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service (APHIS) has a has a health and safety mandate for sure. Got to make sure that our that our food um, is safe for people. But it also has a commercial mandate. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture is all about promoting American products and exports. And so yes, they want to keep it safe, but they also really want to open up markets. In Canada, that um the CFIA, Canadian Food Inspection Agency, has the health and safety mandate, but the commercial export mandate lives somewhere else. And so as a result, you've got regulators in Canada that could shut down an entire industry for health reasons um, and not worry if they put them out of business. That's somebody that's kind of somebody else's problem. And so that came up during this dispute between the US and Canada, because the US was You know, using its advantages and trying to trying to create market opportunities uh, for Idaho potato growers and Maine potato growers at the expense of Canadian potato growers, and that was just normal practice in the U.S. Um, Do you is that just potatoes, or do you see that difference um, between the U.S. regulatory system and the Canadian regulatory system? One being, you know, in the United States, we're all about promotion. And in Canada, it's more about regulation and health and safety. Is that a big, am I imagining that to be a bigger difference than it is, or do you see it coming up in other areas? Um,
0: It's it's, it's interesting, interesting thought. I don't know if I've been confronted with that one before. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, the, I mean, the, the first thing that, that I think we should cover off is, uh, is you know, <laughs> maybe the same thing that, that I, that I said about uh, milk marketing. I mean, there's, Lot more similarities and there are differences you know so these are both you know heavily science-based regulatory systems that that, right. that that i think you know have a great deal of integrity to them um you know the 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 word that that you used that i that i stumbled on because i i think this is this is correct is commercial so right. um yeah you know is you know the Canadian Food Inspection agency you know I I think they're very active um internationally um you know have a great deal of expertise internationally as as does um uh, Aphis within the USda um I I think we have you know struggled a little bit with you know is the regulatory system is the is the is part of the objective you know among you know, obviously public safety and, and, and other you know, efficacy of treatments and all that sort of thing. It, is it, is it commercial development of, you know, Canadian, uh, you know, farm and food products? I don't know if that's, would be in the mantra the same way that it is with USDA.
1: Yeah, it, it is commercial promotion and export promotion does exist in Canada. It's, you know, there are people who that's their job. Um, but, but, but they don't live within the regulatory body. And so they don't get to promote something for export until the regulators deem that it's right. that it's safe. And so you have this, you know, sort of dual mandate in the U.S., which means if we can get a commercial advantage over our Canadian competitor or any other international competitor, and we can benefit uh, American farmers and growers and ranchers, we're going to do that all day long. And it's, I think it's a bit of a cultural difference in the U.S. Like we're, you know... We, well, you know, in you know, our
0: capitalist it, tendencies maybe well one, one of the one of the consequences of that i think on, on the on the canadian side is that we have you know perhaps more cautious and slow regulatory approval process for you know if it's uh pe- pesticides animal health products uh, you know other other um you know f- food additives all, all these sorts of things and uh nothing, n- nothing wrong with caution prudent caution um you know, but you you will have some technology developers who will, who will say, well, you know, look, you know, I I do the I do the background work in Canada, but I know it's going to be too slow to get it approved in Canada. I can go to the U.S. and I got a faster road toward commercialization because the mindset's a little bit different. I, th- I think that's fair enough. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, and you know it's interesting because Canada just had a cabinet shuffle, and um, the new treasury board minister is the former defense minister. So Anita Anand has moved from defense to treasury. And what she might not know yet, uh, but, and maybe she does, but we're going to brief her on it if she doesn't, is treasury board has the responsibility for regulatory cooperation with the United States. And so Minister Anand is going to be able to take her Um, skilled multilateral uh, collaboration skills and bring it right into exactly what you're talking about, Al, which is these differences in regulations. Because while both the U.S. and Canada have the sovereign right to have whatever system they want, the truth is when it comes to innovation and innovation in food and products, we should be going as fast as we can. And if it's safe in Canada, the U.S. should just say good enough for me and vice versa. Right. So that we can we can just kind of conquer the world's challenges together instead of instead of slow rolling it in one country or the other.
0: Well, yeah, that's 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 right. And, and, uh, you know, there's a regulatory cooperation council, which I'm sure both of you are are familiar with. It's kind of fallen into the well and (laughs) do do apologies to to people who are listening from the regulatory cooperation council. but We don't hear as much about you as we used to. Yeah, uh, this this was, if I recall, that's what that's
1: what I'm talking about. You're exactly yeah. right. This is yeah, what I'm so saying. So a minister and not uh, is going to be able to take out. Yeah,
0: this was. Uh, let me see now. In one of the George Bush administrations, introduced and I, and I didn't realize this, but but it was actually renewed under the Trump administration. Um, and that's
1: exactly right. A
0: lot of the points of regulatory cooperation are in agriculture and food issues. And um, and uh, you know you, you you wonder so so um, the U.S.-China Phase One Agreement um, seemed to allow for I'm going to say harmonization and apologies if that's not quite the right term, but of of um, tolerances for what China was prepared to import from the United States with. American standards and or codex standards. It kind of, it it's, it's never been resolved in my mind, and, and I don't know to what extent it's been tested uh, otherwise, whether, you know, given that we have regulatory cooperation uh, at a technical level in ag and food issues, whether, you know, in effect, the, you know, the, that, that arrangement with China would flow right back through to products imported into the United States from Canada. You would think that it would, but as far as I know, the language doesn't tell us that. Maybe, maybe I'm getting to. Well, I haven't thought. No, that's interesting. Material,
1: right? That's a really interesting question. We're going to have to, we don't always get assignments from our guests on the podcast, but that's a good one, Al. Chris and I are going to have to look into that.
2: Yeah. I'm usually given homework, not getting it, but thank you very much. Al. I appreciate that. Um, can I ask you a question a little bit about, um, uh, what what's happening with the agriculture agri-food supply chains? Because I know you've done some work on that. It, it it seems as though we've become quite interconnected, and just as most people don't know where their food comes from, they don't know how all these these linkages linkages go. But there's a greater and greater desire for transparency and, to some extent, accountability uh, of supply chains, where you actually know that there's no forced labor. Not that that happens much in farming, but but that there are uh, no bad things occurring. Maybe even people care about the the carbon emissions and in the, in the life cycle of the product, and. I'm, I'm always, I, I sort of, when I think of that problem, I think back to the 1980s where we had that case of um, tampering with Tylenol that got the pharmaceutical industry to really uh, develop quite amazing systems where they could go and they could tell you if there was a tampering, which case, which lot, which number, and they could kind of destroy the product that had to be destroyed. In the um, Before the Trump administration and the Obama administration, we started seeing that with, I think it was salmonella and Mexican peppers, where instead of just stopping the trade, there was an attempt to kind of identify where there might have been an infection and just destroy that part of the food just to be safe, but to let the rest of the economy go. Um, Are are we moving towards really data-rich Supply chains where we can do that kind of thing, and if there is a problem, just sort of zero in on it. Can we do that today? Is that science fiction for the future? Uh, well, we we've headed very much in that
0: direction, and um, you know, I, I'm going to say that part of, uh, in large part, this is market driven, um, mm-hmm. and it's you know not just that uh, people want to know where their food comes from. Uh, of course, some people do, but. But yeah, exactly what you just described. In the event of a food recall and so on, you know, how do we, how do we know where to reach back to, and how do we identify sources? Um, and and you know, so 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 that's that's a that's a, a market driven phenomenon. We want to be able to do that rapidly, and we want to be able to do it at low cost. Um, there's there's a technology element to this, so it's it's remarkable how. Uh, well, you have to go back to things like uh, uh, RFID and, and other sorts of technologies, allow us to remotely capture uh, the, the source of product and track it through, um, you know, a pretty a pretty complex uh, supply chain that you don't, you know, you don't think of it as a batch process, but it's more of a continuous flow process. But we've managed to, you know, for the purposes of information collection, batch it to a large degree. So, yeah, that's, that's
2: become quite extensive. And it's interesting because um, when the U.S. and China or Canada and China, we we're all sort of wrestling over things. But I remember Canada start, started having problems shipping canola. To China, because China said, oh, there's a phyto sanitary issue. There's a contamination. And, you know, China's done that to a lot of countries it gets mad at. It just claims that there's some sort of, you know, there's something wrong with the the shipments. But Canada could be pretty confident that was politics and not scientifically based because you had the science and you knew a little bit about what the product was like. uh, Is that a... Is that ultimately a source of strength for us in North America that we actually have a greater depth of knowledge about what we're producing and where we're producing it and where there may be problems? Whereas a country like China has a more uh, primitive, if you will, regulatory process that's heavily political and it's it's a it's a economy wide ban on imports because that's what they know how to do. Can we can we use that agility in our system and that greater scientific base to build confidence in our products and, and ultimately in our exports as well?
0: Yeah, um let, let me let me try and break that down um a little bit so I'll, I'll just give an example relative to to Canola. so I was at a um I was at a terminal elevator um just a few weeks ago uh, it's a, uh located in a port on uh, Lake Ontario Hamilton Ontario and you know you can see how this works you know a truck pulls in you know they've got this fob type device that they register with they you know they swipe it. You know, it immediately collects all this information on the driver, the truck, the trailer, the last three loads that the trailer uh, uh, transported, you know, moves over remote testing, you know, the, the truck sits there pending the test, you know, it'll give it a, it approve reject based on, based on, uh, in in the case of a port, it's, it's actually quite stringent quality criteria. Um, and, and, you know, all, all of this is recorded. It's, paperless and you know theoretically it lives forever and 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 can be drawn back upon um you know you, you mentioned that the, the chinese technology is more primitive that that's probably true i'm not knowledgeable about it you know I, I i never want to underestimate however the sophistication of uh of chinese uh industries and including the ag and food industry so i be sure about that um you know the, the difficulties with some of these disputes with china is um um you know there, there's um, their understanding of what's entailed by a rules-based trade system and ours uh, differs. I, th- I think we I think we understand that. Um, so there, there's more of a willingness to, you know, let's say uh, use uh, food or farm products as a tool of retaliation for other kinds of disputes, political or, or otherwise and and they do that and and that worries us. Um, you know, I I think the on the canola case, the record will show that um there had previously been technical discussions with the Chinese having to do with dockage in canola and tolerances for dockage and Chinese concerns about this dockage. Um, and and that's you know, that's that's a, a technical issue. It's uh, concerns that the Chinese had having to do with um uh, diseased uh, uh, tra- transmission. So, uh, I, I guess, Chris, maybe I'll respond in in, in this way. I, I, I think the the prevalent opinion would be, you know, well, this is simple politics, and and uh, you know, when when the uh, the Chinese government is upset with you, well, then you just get these arbitrary acts, and 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 that's probably true some of the time, but it's but it's not so out of whack with some, you know, I'll say science-based and technical issues and and differences of opinion or disputes that had previously been enunciated, that it's a little
2: bit hard to sort of. I will just, just so that I don't get uh, a lot of hate mail from, uh, from, from China, I'm not so much suggesting that China's technology is primitive, but I guess my sense was that their regulatory system gave them bans, not not a more uh, data-driven way to kind of focus in on individual lots or products or, as you say, batches. So maybe that—that that was what I was trying to get. That that our system gives us a little bit more ability to be precise.
0: Maybe a, maybe a safe way to say this is that it's it's different. Um, and I'll give you I'll give you a tangible example. Um, uh, you know, during the uh, the the COVID pandemic, which which you know the height of it um uh, uh, kind of lagged or, or came later in in China than it, than it did here um you know Canada ran into some significant problems with regard to exports of pork in particular but but you know maybe other meats as well and and what would happen would be you'd, you'd get these loads that would be uh you know they'd be they'd be stuck at the dock and they, they wouldn't be cleared and in in my understanding of this is, is what went into that is uh, municipal public health authorities from the destination regions of China would go and swab the container. And if the container was found to have, you know, the, the COVID virus in it, they would say, well, you know, that's not coming in. Not only that, we're not taking any more product from whatever origin of that plant was. Now, I I, I think, and again, I don't want to get too far out of, you know, I'm not a you know, toxicologist or or <laughs> Or epidemiologists or anything like that, but but you know you might say well you know actually you know maybe the virus came from maybe it didn't come from the boxed meat that was contained in the container maybe it's been through a lot of hands or, or whatever else. Um, but you know who would have thought that um, a municipal public health authority would cause a, a trade disruption like that? And, and as, as far as I know, in Canada and the U.S., we don't really have a system like that. We have a you know federal. A kind of customs uh, based system for clearance, so that, that would never happen. But
1: well, we have, we yeah, it's an interesting example. We do have agriculture, USDA does have officers at the border, but um, but you're right, it's different, it certainly isn't a municipal health authority screening what comes in. Let's take a little break. And when we come back, Al, I wanna ask you about the US Farm Bill because uh, as we record this, it's August or first week of August, 2023, and Congress took a break here in Washington and made zero progress as far as I can see on a $1 trillion uh, piece of legislation. So we'll be right back. What did Prime Minister William Lye McKenzie King and President Woodrow Wilson have in common? Yes, they both led their countries during wartime, but they were also the only leaders of their countries to hold a PhD. At the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, we follow these academic civil servants to bring the public the best nonpartisan research and analysis. We're the only think tank in D.C. focused on this vital relationship. So in addition to the great repartee you get to hear on Canusa Street, head over to wilsoncenter.org to check out the Canada Institute's work and events.
2: Welcome back to Kinesis Street, everybody. My name is Chris Sands, and I'm here with the fabulous Scotty Greenwood. And our guest this week is Al Mussel, Mussel who is talking to us about the agri-food supply chain, as he is the president of the Canadian Agri-Food uh, Policy Institute. Scotty, when we broke, you were about to jump in on the farm bill.
1: Well, the, the farm bill, as we call it here in Washington, is a big piece of legislation uh where a lot of money is spent across across our agriculture economy i wonder um al how involved do you get how closely do you watch the farm bill is it something that um that is relevant to you or 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 kind of what do you what do you make of it in terms of the north american agri-food economy
0: well it's it's absolutely relevant uh to us you know if for no other reason that um you know we have a, a free trade agreement with uh, the United States and Mexico, and uh, you know, you know, with the exceptions of uh, let me see now, sugar, uh, dairy, and poultry, we have you know almost unrestricted free trade in all the other farm and, and food um, uh, commodities. So you know, if when the U.S. Um, Has a new farm bill, new 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 policies, new budgets, et cetera. Well, absolutely, that that uh, that concerns us uh, greatly. Now, you know, one 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 trillion. I'm guessing that of that, probably something in excess of 700 billion will be uh, SNAP or the food stamps uh, program. So it's you know you're you're getting down to probably. 20 percent that is sort of targeted at the agricultural um mm-hmm. economy but but for sure we we pay great attention to that
2: so, so al when when uh, scotty's question about the farm bill gets me thinking um about kind of uh, the connection between legislators you know a lot of members of congress or farmers have a farm background they're very much involved I, I assume some of our members of parliament in canada have the same kind of background to what extent do you think the agricultural economy gets a different kind of um, response from government, particularly from the legislature, than, say, other industries. Maybe automotive manufacturing pulls together an auto caucus in a similar way. But, But what's your sense about the way in which we make policy? Is it is there always going to be a political element because we have elected officials who represent rural communities and farming areas who actually come in with a, you know, with some serious knowledge about about their sector and about how that a part of the economy operates? Yeah, well, I, I,
0: I guess a couple of things. Uh, uh, first, yeah, where, where you have elected, uh, elected officials that bring background to it, bring enthusiasm to it, um, you know, uh, see particular strategies or opportunities, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll have that. Um, the, you know, the representation of the United, in, in uh, public representation in the United States is, is um, kind of structured differently than it is in Canada. Mm. Canada is much more of a representation by, by population. You know, stories, whereas, whereas in the U S you know, every, every state's got, got two senators um, and, you know, the, the, um, uh, the house picks up sort of the, the population uh component of it um you know we don't really have a system like that we, you know we've uh we've got electoral boundaries which uh, you know really kind of concentrate um the vote in population centers in in Central Canada you know there's a few cities, you know, there's Vancouver a few cities in Western Canada but but you know it, it, it's kind of known that that a that a federal political party can you know if you if you uh, you know if you if you split Quebec and win Ontario well really you could lose everywhere else and probably form a majority of government so now you know does, does that mean that there's there's uh, no interest in in you uh, know agricultural policy or, or what we can do with agricultural r- rural areas in Canada well cert- certainly not because we have you know this massive economic development interest in in um, you know in in what we can do in in agriculture and and you know for for people who aren't you know perhaps close to this you know there's few countries in the world and I mean very few you'd have to look at maybe Australia, New Zealand, a few others that sort of have agricultural and, and food production capacity um, um out of scale with the domestic population to feed. So um, you know, if, if Canada is going to be able to use its its natural resources suited to agriculture effectively and efficiently, then we we have to be able to export. And and you know, uh, when when you're involved in international trade, that's necessarily going to um, have to work through the federal system in a country's government. And that, that so that that awareness that awareness is there, but. It has a I I think it's fair to say—a little bit of a different flavor to it than it would in the U.S., where you know you you got farm states, and all of them are going to have two senators with that interest.
2: You you bring up that idea of export, and I think a lot of us, um, just sort of observing what's been going on, have have looked at. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a lot of Ukrainian grain and even some some Russian product not being able to get through the Black Sea. I know there was an agreement that recently collapsed, and it's reminded a lot of people about that issue of global food security because um, we know a lot of the countries of what they're calling now the global South some of the the countries of Africa and, and Latin America and elsewhere where uh, India where they're they're really feeling the pinch because they're unable to get the food that they need to feed their their populations for a long time we used to talk about Canada the. US as sort of breadbasket for the world do you think, there could be a role today, given where we are now, for the United States and Canada to be guarantors of food security or helping through exports to keep feeding people at a time when, when some of the traditional sources in the market are getting pinched for reasons of politics and war and other conflicts. Do we have the capacity to surge and, and really help people in that way? Should we? Or, or do we do that at the peril of our own food security?
0: It's, it's a huge uh it's a huge question Chris um let me let me raise a couple of points so so you know first of all just it, it's hard to put into context what is occurring with uh, the war in Ukraine relative to the global food supply but but uh, you know if you go and and just count tonnage of let's say grain products and some of the products are slightly different we we don't grow a lot of sunflowers Ukraine does we grow a lot of canola and some soybean, uh, but if you look at the pure tonnages, Ukraine is like another Canada, you know, capable of feeding probably about 400 million people. So um, having that go offside is, is just a, I mean, it's a stunning development, particularly in certain regions of the world that are, that are uh, quite de- quite dependent on, um, on Ukraine. Um it, you know, if you step back, um, you go back and look at the the data tracked by the UN FAO, and and uh, if you look at cereal grains, and the reason you look at cereal grains is that um, you know that's sort of the starting point of every supply chain, if you wish. You know, packaged foods, uh, you know, any of your animal-based foods, and and you know what you what you find is, um, you know, over the last number of years, production's been going up. Utilization or consumption's been going up, but production hasn't really been able to keep pace, and as a as a consequence, we haven't been able to build stocks. Stocks have been in decline. Now, if you go and look at the data today, you'll say, "Well, wait a minute, the stocks are back up." Well, that's because the stocks are trapped in you know they're uh, they're they're stranded in in, um, in in Ukraine. Increasingly, those stocks are held in importing countries, um, uh, p- particularly China. And and the reason that that's significant is you know you, you think about these stocks that are that are in place throughout the world Canada U S elsewhere but when they're in importing countries they will reside there they 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 tend not to be redistributed to cover off areas of deficit whether it's you know due to pests or weather or, or whatever it happens to be uh, so so that's 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 a worry um, India is i believe india has the largest acreage of wheat of any country hmm. um you know one of the one of the remarkable things that that you know maybe from a north american centric perspective we don't think about you know who are the largest producers of most of the crops well the u.s is a pretty large producer but china is a very large producer of everything so is india because for heaven's sake, they have well over a billion people to feed. They 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 need to. Um, but but China, you know, food security is a is a front of mind issue for the Chinese leadership because their economy and their population has grown to a point where really they, you know, they're the largest importer of just about everything, as well as being among the largest producers. India has been a net exporter. However, we worry now as you get rapid economic growth and urbanization in in India, at some point that will begin to kind of turn itself around. And you know, the, the, I guess the recent news on this is uh the largest export of rice in the world. Well, that's they've just clamped that down. So no more rice exports. Um, you know, when these large um very large populations, large economies, they, they uh, out of fear of their own food security, put you know use trade policy measures to try and shore up their supplies. It's 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 an indication of just sort of how dicey our situation is here globally um, as a matter of food security. And, and if you go and look at at um, as uh, at, at global trade balances as we have in uh, Agri Food Policy Institute. I mean, you you find that you know the the largest producers are East Asia and South Asia. The largest importers are East Asia and South Asia. And who supplies them? The Americas, North America and South America. Those are the surplus suppliers. Wow. There's there's some surplus that comes from Oceania, so that's Australia and and you know prior to the war, Eastern Europe, Western Europe's fairly in balance, and and Africa's badly deficit, but and and has been for ages and that's that's uh one of the great uh, inequities in the world
2: frankly and and is that i'm I, not not to uh, get into the weeds but i love the weeds um not uh as as we've benefited from growing economic development etc diets change and people who never thought they'd ever have beef except maybe you know as a big treat want to have more and more of it in their diet and and these things it changes the way that the, the food system values things. It puts more demand on those high-end products, which are already more expensive and, and can create some disruptions. Are we, are we suffering from, uh, in some ways, uh, a, a transition to a world of higher wealth uh, thanks to you know, good times? I guess that doesn't last forever, but how has that started to change the way agricultural supply chains and ag- the agricultural business looks at exports?
0: Um, let me attack your question this, this way. This this is a, a difficult situation. So, um, you know, we're 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 looking at in the you know intermediate future a population of 10 billion or thereabouts. Um, uh, so that's more people to feed, and we also need to look at for much of the world, not North America, but much much of the world, an upgrade in diets. Which generally means more protein, which means more animal foods. Now we're going to have to try and do that with, without bringing a conversion of more pristine land into agricultural use and with less, uh, w- w- with a reduction in
2: greenhouse gas. Um, so this is sort of the amazon rainforest we don't want to turn that into a you know cattle feed because obviously it would have double impact on on losing the green but also yeah
0: you know and and you know there's you know some concerns that 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 will proceed to the point where you'll hit some sort of a tipping point and because the amazon affects global weather patterns and all, all that sort of thing um so, so you know that's that's what we're faced with now. Now you might say, well, you know, if you're in the food business, wow, that's, that's great. I mean, we're we're sellers of food; it's a great opportunity for us. Um, uh, well, yes, it is, and 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 frankly, um, uh, the world needs us to be able to, and, and us meaning, you know, the big ag exporters: Canada, the U.S., Brazil, Australia, Argentina. Uh, You know, a handful of others that they they need us to be able to uh, to step up. But but you have to understand this is also a fraught situation because, you know, a um, you know, as you as you look at the worry of of their, you you know, at worst, simply not being enough to go around off somewhere into the future. Well then, then then you get uh you know sort of uh, trade policy and 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 food as a weapon. We I mean well we're we're witnessing this right now, frankly, with Russia. So so Russia's now um you know bombarding Danube ports to try and cripple the uh, Ukrainian economy. But that and that, and that's a food economy. It's it's an ag economy that they're targeting there. Um so 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 you worry about that. the other more difficult thing that that you layer on top of this is um if you have you know if, if the world continues to grow economically uh, particularly in less developed countries there's a very high correlation between economic growth and the the demand for and 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 uh, demand for foods but particularly proteins that are that are intensive to produce from both a, a resource and a an emissions perspective so we'll have to manage that somehow That's if we continue to have broadly economic growth. Conversely, if the world were to go into a depression, let's say, then what will happen instead, is so, so sorry, in, in the first case, we have to worry about our capacity to be able to sustainably supply that. If we go into depression, then then conversely, the, the demand for some foods will fall off. And then what happens is people just starve. And, and I mean it. Uh, that's that's a uh, that's a very serious situation so you know i maybe I'm giving a bit of a bleak sounding uh response to your to your question but I guess I'm just trying to put in some context it's a very serious situation that we're trying to balance and in terms of how countries work together um you know how companies invest what happens now is going to have big implications for many years to come in how this works
2: well, and this is where I think the Canada-U.S. partnership in agriculture and agriculture regulation and trying to, to work together. If we can't make it work here, no one will. So um, always an important issue for us here on Canusa Street. And Al, thank you very much. Al Mussel, um, research lead and founder of Agri-Food Economic Systems, Inc. and the research director of the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute. Thank you for coming to visit with us here on Canusa Street. Thanks very much for having me.
1: Well, Chris, thank you for inviting Al to our podcast and for coming up with the idea that we talk about agri-food and food security. Al certainly knows knows his stuff, both sides of the border, and and we got to meet a cow on the podcast, and so that was pretty excellent, <laughs> I got to say.
2: It was pretty excellent, and it reminded me of... of- the times where I've, when I was in Minnesota, or or I I met with farmers, there's a a saying they have out there, uh, where someone will say, well, that's different, or that's real real different. And it's not approval, but it's not necessarily disapproval. It's just sort of this comment, like you don't know what to say. But you sometimes feel like when they say that to you, you're kind of like, Okay. I don't know whether I sold them or not. And I I heard Al saying that a couple of times during our discussion where uh, one of my wacky comments or questions got him to think, well, that's a different take.
1: <laughs> well, you're, uh, your questions are always thoughtful, I think, but I, you know, um, it, sometimes it's hard to figure out. We, we, we actually... Our listeners might not know this, but we just we just kind of riff with our guests, so it's not like Al knew what was coming from either one of us. And uh, I think he, I just think he handled it with a plum. I was really delighted with, with the conversation. And I also one of the things I love about this is I learn a lot every time, uh, every time we have an episode of Canusa Street. I mean, sometimes people think you you and I are experts. You actually are an expert. Uh, I'm along for the ride, but but I love learning. And I I think I think this is a great way in our niche Canada-US way to to bring different aspects, food security, Canada-US competition, Canada-US collaboration, mm-hmm. Canada-US regulatory cohesion. These are all things that matter to what we put on the dinner table every single day. So I was thrilled that you brought this one to us, Chris.
2: Oh, I, I was pleased with Al as well. And, and I think one of the things he got at, which is so important in Canada-US, is that The experts on both sides, because they do carefully look at the evidence, they weigh the science and so on, they speak the same language, even if the rest of us are mystified. Uh, Dairy subsidies, Al pointed out, well, between the two systems, they're not that different, even though we fight about them on trade. And for him to explain that, as he did here in, in not that many words, that was like a master class in in the complexity of policy and how it affects pricing and how it affects farm choices, I it was wonderful. And that's what you get when you really get to the experts who work on Canada U.S., the mutual respect and the fact that there are no dummies on either side. Nobody's being foolish. It was just Sometimes we disagree and sometimes we have friction, but but if we can trust the science, trust the evidence, we can work it that's out. That's
1: exactly right. And now we're gonna move it along. On Canusa Street, that was yes. brought to you by Cow Number 87 from Al Mussel's yes, Farm. Yes. Paid political
2: you, advertisement. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you, me and Cow 87 will uh, will go far on Canusa Street. <laughs> there
1: you go. Always <laughs> great to see you, my friend. We'll see you next time.
2: See you next time.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.